The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'd open your Bibles there this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Our text is verses 4 and 5, in which Paul mentions one of his favorite subjects. As a matter of course, and not as if to introduce a strange theme, not as if he would say something that was completely unheard of, Paul told the church at Thessalonica that he knew they were chosen by God. This is the doctrine of election which is one of the often repeated themes in Paul's letters. Paul had much less trouble speaking of this doctrine than most pastors and people in our churches do today. This is our fourth message on this subject, and we will conclude our discussion of this doctrine today. But I can assure you that it won't be uh, hidden from us or uh, hard to find in other messages. It won't stay in the background because... This is a very important subject and one that we must know and one that we must understand clearly to have assurance of our salvation. I know that there are some of you would like to, we would like to have another election, and I don't mean election of God's people, but some people are not too happy with the elections that we've had, and they'd like to have another one. But I can assure you this election is a one-time election, and it does not need to be repeated, and it's the best election that we could ever have. Now, the title of the message today is Chosen by God, that in eternity past, for reasons that were known only to him and for purposes that would glorify him, God chose out of all humanity those who would receive the saving benefits of his grace. This is Paul's comment concerning the doctrine in verses 4 and 5. He said, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God... For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And then he followed up that same thought in the second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 in verses 13 and 14, where he wrote, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see then that the doctrine of election was not strange to Paul, He said that God chose you to salvation from the beginning before he created the world. He chose you to come to the belief of the truth. Now throughout the history of the Christian church, the election of God has been a much contested doctrine. There is hardly anyone who denies that there is a doctrine of election found in the Bible. They can't do that. But there is much discussion about the how, the when, and the why of this doctrine. And the issue has polarized so many people that there are some who hate the doctrine so badly that they would go as far as to deny that those who believe this doctrine could actually be born-again Christians. 
Now, can you imagine this, that Paul said, God chose you to salvation, and they say that if you believe this, you aren't saved. And they'll say this is a heretical doctrine, that if you say that God chose some for his reasons and his purposes, but that God does not choose all, that that is heresy. I know there are some of you at one time were very much opposed to this doctrine, and mostly your objections were due to misunderstandings and mischaracterizations of what the doctrine means and of what our church, church uh, believes concerning it. Uh, a former pastor friend in San Diego preached a series of messages last year on this subject that was filled with inaccuracies and multiple misapplications and, quite frankly, some strategically placed falsehoods. And he needed those in order to deny the doctrine. So this doctrine is considered today with much dishonesty uh, by many pastors uh, in their ignorance. And this gets passed around from pastor to pastor and church to church as if they are scholars who uh, are to be believed without question. But today I'd like to discuss with you one of the objections that they make to the doctrine. And perhaps this is one of the primary ones. And it's based upon more short-sighted misunderstandings of what we believe. And this concerns evangelism. Is election the enemy of evangelism? And what does the doctrine of election have to do with evangelism? Recently I heard the vice president of a Christian college say that we don't believe in evangelism. And he said that we are hyper-Calvinist who don't believe in preaching the gospel that if we believe and teach what is known as the five points of the doctrines of grace, that means we must be against evangelism. Now, another interesting comment, uh, he said that we are not Spurgeon-type Calvinist. Well, you can use that word if you like. And he said Spurgeon was passionate about the gospel, and he pleaded for people to be saved, and that's what made Spurgeon different from others who believe the doctrines of grace. Now, in that interview, I thought it was interesting that the interviewer asked the college vice president why most pastors then have Spurgeon in their libraries. And if you didn't know, Spurgeon's zeal and his teachings and what he uh, believed, the fervency of what he believed, is sort of a bellwether for many of our Baptist people. And this person also said, as he was interviewing, he said the hymns that we sing, were written by people who believed in the five points of the doctrines of grace. And he wanted to know, how can that be reconciled? How can it be reconciled that Spurgeon and the hymn writers believe differently than what Baptist people and Baptist pastors today believe? And the explanation of it was classical misinformation, usually fed to those who don't have knowledge of the subject, and he said that Spurgeon was not like modern advocates of the doctrines of grace. He was different because he believed in evangelism. But you have heard me preach, and you know what our church stands for. You know what you've been taught. I read this quote from Spurgeon in week number one. I think it's worth us reading again. So let's make no mistake about what Spurgeon the evangelist believed. He said, before salvation came into this world... Election marched at the very forefront, and it had for its work the billeting, that means the lodging, of salvation. Election went through the world and marked the houses to which salvation should come and the hearts in which the treasure should be deposited. 
election, look through all the race of man from Adam down to the last, and mark with sacred stamp those for whom salvation was designed. He must needs go through Samaria, said election, and salvation must go there. Then came predestination. Predestination did not merely mark the house, but it mapped the road in which salvation should travel to that house. Predestination ordained every step of the great army of salvation. It ordained the time when the sinner should be brought to Christ, the manner how he should be saved, the means that should be employed. It marked the exact hour and moment when God the Spirit should quicken the dead in sin and when peace and pardon should be spoken through the blood of Jesus. Predestination marked the way so completely that salvation doth never overstep the bounds and is ever, never at a loss for the road. In the everlasting decree of the sovereign God, the footsteps of mercy were every one of them ordained. Spurgeon was evangelistic and he wholeheartedly believed in the doctrine of election and he preached as God's messenger as the means to the salvation of the elect. As the word of God says, how shall they hear without a preacher? The scripture says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And Spurgeon was that instrument. He was that man who believed in preaching the gospel of Christ to people that are dying and on their way to hell. And I would ask you, is that anything different from what you've heard us preach in this pulpit? Is it anything different from what we believe about evangelism? Spurgeon believed and preached the Bible. We do the same, and we preach it from the very same text that he used, the ones that were spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Apostle Paul and by the other apostles and writers of the New Testament. What we believe is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. You are saved because God chose you from the beginning. He chose you for this purpose that you might believe the truth. And I'll say, folks, that anyone who is saved and believes the truth believes because God opened up their depraved mind, their depraved heart, to understand the gospel. So you are saved, and you sit here, hopefully, rejoicing in your salvation today because you have learned the truth. And God is the one who has decided that you should know it. And that's what makes you different from those that don't believe. You don't have anything to thank yourself for. Salvation from the beginning to end is the work of God. Now, in the previous messages, we've discussed the meaning of election, and we've discussed the one who chose you, that God is the one who chose you. You didn't choose yourself. And we've discussed that the choice was before God created the world, and that means before you were born. And we discussed that God chose you for his glory. And God chose you to be holy and without blame. And God chose you to reverse the rebellion, the hostility that you had against him. And to make you a friend of his. To make you at peace with him. To be reconciled to him. God is glorified whenever sin is overthrown. And that is God's purpose, to overthrow sin in your life. And this is why you are sanctified. And this is why you become a follower of Jesus Christ and walk in His way, in His past, because God has chosen to overthrow the rebellion that was in you against Him. And so, God saves you to restore you to a sanctified life. Now today we're going to continue that thought and look into God's command for evangelism. We've discussed the who, the what, the why, and the when of God's election. And today we're going to break with that outline and we'll start a new one dealing with election and evangelism. 
Our first point of discussion today is that election promotes evangelism. Election promotes evangelism. Election is not the enemy of evangelism. Not as the college professor said, election promotes evangelism. And how do I know that? Because I see it in this text. We see it in the text of 1 Thessalonians 1 that Paul believed in election and the people that he wrote to accepted it, as I said, not as a strange doctrine that they hear, but they believe it because Paul evidently had taught this to them before. They understood they were the elect of God. And we have to look at what it did to them. Did that election hinder or did it help their evangelism? And as we look at the text, if you read the entire first chapter, we see that their belief did a tremendous good for them because Paul says in verse number 8 that everywhere he went, this news of their salvation had sounded out throughout the region so that Paul didn't need to question and ask people about how to be saved because they've already heard the message of Jesus Christ and they'd already seen the change that had taken place in these Thessalonian people. We're chosen for God's glory before we're chosen for our good. But there's none of us who can deny that the election of God has done tremendous good in our lives. That the election of God did something for us. That God chose us to salvation, that He sanctified us, and that changed us. And He did that personally, and He did it individually. And without God's choice, we would never be saved. And if God did not work in us to believe, if he did not do that personally and individually, we would never be saved. And I'm sure that I could talk to many of you today who could say that I was once wayward from Jesus Christ, that I was once walking my own path, that I cared nothing about God. But then one day the gospel of Christ was told to me and I changed and I turned around and when I heard it there was something that happened in me that caused me to go a different way. And friends, that change was affected because there was a doctrine of election that God chose you to believe in Him. Now we saw last time that we were all enemies of God, that we were hostile to Him. Our hearts were turned away and we would never turn towards Him. And it was not until God intervened and changed our heart that we came to Him in faith. Until He subdued that stubborn will that was always against Him, we would not believe. Now at some point... Prior to working in us to believe, it must be that God determined that he would work in us to believe. He chose those on which he would bestow saving grace. And that's not strictly a theological question or point. That's a logical conclusion. That if a person is dead and trespasses and sin, and if someone who is in that condition cannot reach up to touch God, cannot reach up to grasp hold of God, then it, God must come down to him. God must come to him. And that, folks, is what we call grace. That's where grace comes in. God reached down to us. And it's apparent that God has not reached down to all with saving grace. And that's just simply deduced by facts that we see and we know. Now, earlier in the series, I explained that election and our salvation are not the same. They're very closely related. One inevitably leads to the other, but they're not the same. Paul said in 2 Timothy that God has appointed the elect to obtain 
their salvation. And so until they believe, they haven't yet obtained it. He called them the elect in verse number 4. And then in verse number 5, he noted that their assurance is grounded in this election of God. That God did not appoint them to wrath, but he said he has appointed you to salvation. And in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul endured, he said, trials and tribulations that they might obtain their salvation. And I hope that you remember in the very beginning when we opened up this letter of 1 Thessalonians that we discussed how Paul preached to the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17. And when he preached there, there was a mob that ran him out of town. Immediately upon leaving there, he went to Berea. And there that that crowd followed him and tried to do the same to kill him and he had to escape once again. And these are things that Paul often mentions in his letters. He talks about those persecutions and those trials and those tribulations that he endured in order to preach the gospel of Christ, knowing that the ones that he preached to would believe, that the elect would believe. He preached to all, knowing that only the elect would believe in Jesus Christ. Did this stop him from preaching the gospel? Well, we know that it didn't. It spurred him on. It drove him because he knew that there were people that would believe. They were chosen by God to believe. And they must hear to obtain their salvation. Everyone that I know that preaches and believes this doctrine believes this about evangelism. That there is no one who will be saved unless they hear the gospel of Christ. The elect will not be saved unless they believe. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we've got to preach to them. Somebody has to tell them the truth. And yet, the president of the Christian college said, we don't believe that. The preacher in San Diego repeated the same thing, said, we don't believe that. We have preachers in our own town that say that we don't believe this. And instead they say we preach fatalism which from a philosophical standpoint could never be true because God's predestination and determination can never be termed fatalistic. And so they say, well, you are a fatalist if you believe that before the foundation of the world that God chose you in Christ. But fatalism has no rhyme or reason. Fatalism is happenstance chance, and we are not fatalistic. We don't believe in chance. We believe that God ordains... And that God purposes and wills and God fulfills and then God chooses and then God saves. And so to say that election is the enemy of evangelism is to deny the Bible and deny Christian history. Because we look at the history of the Christian church and we find that the greatest evangelistic campaigns in all of history were conducted under the preaching of those who believed in the doctrine of election. Now, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Here we read about the first great revival in the church. It happens in Acts number 2 when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And you know the story how there were 3,000 people who believed and were baptized on that day. And so we might ask the question, did Peter preach election? Well, let's look at verses 38 and 39. Then Peter said unto them... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children 
and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Who is given salvation? Only as many as the Lord our God shall call. Does God call everyone? Well, then Peter would have said, this promise is to you and to everybody. Did Peter believe in the sovereignty of God? Well, if you carefully read his sermon, you'll find that he speaks of the foreknowledge of God. He speaks of the determinate counsel of God. In other words, what Peter said in this message is that what happened to Christ in the crucifixion was already determined by God way back when, before God created the world. It was determined that Christ would come into the world and that he would die for sin. In other words, God foreordains, God elected his own son to die for our sins. Now, in 1 Peter, Peter said the same, and he says in that first chapter that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And then, in the very same terms, he said, you were elected, that you were foreordained for your salvation. Oh, the greatest revival preachers in history believed this, and they preached it. William Carey, the first modern missionary took the gospel to India in the 18th century, and this was his doctrine. Adoniram Johnson, in the same time period, took the gospel to Burma, and this was his doctrine. Hudson Taylor took the gospel to China, and this was his doctrine. And in this country, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached the great revival that was known as the First Great Awakening. And in New England alone, there were 34,000 people who came to faith in Christ. And so did their belief in the electing grace of God stop them from evangelism? No, it was that belief that drove them. And then, in the early 18th and 19th centuries, it would be almost impossible that you would find a Baptist in America that did not believe in the electing grace of God. The great Baptist confessions of faith came out of that period and all of them affirm the sovereign choice of God in election. And then, of course, in the middle to the late 19th century, there was Spurgeon. And I've read what he believed about election. There were thousands that packed the sanctuary, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, to hear Spurgeon preach. And there were so many that came to hear him that Spurgeon told church members, stay home on Sunday night. I'm not tried that yet, but he told church members, stay home on Sunday night. And you know why? Because there were so many lost people that came that they couldn't find a place to sit. Today, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, that Baptist church, preaches the very same message that Spurgeon preached. And on Sunday nights, their, their sermons are evangelistic sermons. And so these are all evangelists that we're speaking of. They believed and they preach that there's anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who repents of their sins and turns to Jesus Christ, that will be saved. And at the same time, they preach that it is only the elect that will repent and believe. They also preach Revelation 5.9, which doesn't restrict redemption to any one group, but it says that people from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, and every people will be in the throng of God that are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, election promotes evangelism because there's no way for the elect to be saved unless someone preaches the gospel of Christ. Romans 10 says, 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now I want you to hold on to that thought for just a minute and I'm going to come back to that. So first we see that election promotes evangelism. Next, number two, election promotes proper evangelism. Now let's think for just a moment about methods of evangelism that are used by those who deny this doctrine. This is the way a presentation usually goes. God loves you and he wants you to go to heaven. And then they ask, do you want to go to heaven? Well, there aren't many people that would answer, no, I don't want to go to heaven. And so they tell them, believe in Jesus and you can go to heaven. Will you say this prayer with me and ask Jesus to save you so you can go to heaven? And then when they prayed the prayer, they pronounced them saved and they go to the next door and they start the presentation over. But there's something drastically missing in that presentation. There are some of them, and in fact many of them, that mention that people are sinners. And they will say that sin will cause you to go to hell. But in that, they don't drive this point home of the, of the abject sinful condition of man. And so there isn't a steadfast demand for that repentance and the acknowledgement of sin. And there's no insistence that Christ must be received as sovereign Lord of the person's life. The college vice president I mentioned a moment ago serves on a campus with a building dedicated to a man that said repentance from all sin is not a part of the gospel. And he said that repentance does not mean to turn from sin. And so what happens if you believe and teach that? That's called easy believism. People are told they're saved and yet they produce no evidence of a change in their lives. Oh, they hope that a change will come, but it's not necessary for it to be true. And yet they still believe that people are saved because they prayed a prayer. But election teaches, and we've already seen this in Ephesians 1, that God has also chosen us to be holy and without blame. That's what salvation always does to the person who is a true believer. It changes him so that he doesn't do the things that he used to do. And he doesn't live the same life that he used to live. There must be that change that takes place because the Bible says that God has chosen us to be holy and without blame. Paul said, I know you are chosen by God. And what did he say? I've seen your faith and I've seen your hope. I've seen your love. So would Paul say that there is anyone who is chosen who is not also sanctified? And every soul winner should know that. If there's not deep contrition for sin, if there is no repentance from sin, if there is no evidence of faith revealed by following Christ and forsaking the world, then there is no salvation. Now, why do you suppose those methods of evangelism produce very little fruit for Jesus Christ? Well, it's because they don't depend on the Holy Spirit to change a person's heart to receive the gospel of Christ. All they've depended on is an act of a person's will to decide that they will believe. It's simply their choice. And God has nothing to do with directing that choice. But would you look at our text in verse number 5? 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Our gospel came not to you in word only. Do you understand that? What word does he mean? Well, 
He means the scriptures. But not only the scriptures, he means his ability to preach those scriptures. The word is the holy scriptures found in the Bible. That word is the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior. And the word, the Bible, is the only place where you're going to find that information. And Paul says, the gospel did not come to you in word only. It's not just that you have someone like the great Apostle Paul to preach it, not just someone like Paul to read it to you, not just someone like him to tell you about it. It's not just that somebody like Paul can be convincing with the Word and and he can argue the Word of God. Now, most certainly the Word is the instrument of salvation, but it is never the Word only. The Scriptures will lead you to salvation. Paul wrote, they will make you wise unto salvation. But it is never the Word only. Are you getting a little bit nervous about that? Am I saying that the Word of God is insufficient to save? Well, let's go back to the part I told you to remember. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Is hearing enough? How many people hear the gospel of Christ preached from pulpits all across this country? True churches that preach the gospel of Christ. Is that hearing enough? Does the ability to preach, my ability to open up the scriptures, is that what causes you to be saved? Can I convince you or argue you into being saved? Do I have a surefire method, a plan, that if I follow that and you follow it, I know for sure that you will believe? Well, there's some preachers who think so. Some of them can get tricky. They try to trick people into salvation. They have techniques that they use for stubborn sinners. They have their altar calls. They have the tear-jerking stories. They have the prayers and they have songs and they have a show of hands. Is that enough for people to be saved? No, look at our text. For our gospel came not to you in word only. But how did it come? in power, and in the Holy Ghost. The gospel, the plain words are never enough unless they are accompanied by the power of God in the Holy Spirit. Hearing is never enough unless the heart is opened by the Holy Spirit. And what the word means by this is a heart that has been made pliable, a heart that has been softened, a heart that has made soft flesh, By the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit must be there first. God said in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will take away your stony heart. So do you see what they miss? They miss the work of the Holy Spirit. But friends, the gospel does not miss when the Holy Spirit is there first to revive the heart, to soften the heart, and to bring the sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life. There's no one who can manipulate the power of the Spirit. The gospel goes out with an outward call. Every time that the gospel is preached, there is an outward call. Anybody can hear that. Thousands do hear it. But the outward call is never enough. Those who are saved are the ones that the Holy Spirit calls inwardly. Peter said, as many as the Lord our God shall call. That is the inward call, and that always results in the salvation of the sinner. Now, if you'll look for just a moment here in uh, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, if you'll look at verse number 13 in the last part of the verse, it says, It is in truth 
the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Words on the pages of a Bible will not do anything. These are just words on the page of a Bible. There was a printer who printed this, and he put the words on the pages of a Bible. But when those words on the pages of the Bible are energized by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is when they work effectually to bring that person to faith in Christ. Whenever you see this call that he speaks of in the Scriptures, almost always, without exception, it refers to that inward call that's given to the elect of God. So what does that mean for evangelism? It changes the focus. It steers, it steers you away from what you do to what God does for you. In one of Brother Dalton's messages when I was away uh, on the sabbatical, he referred to the book Done that was written by uh, one of the Baptist brethren. And in this book, he said, God has done all he can do and the rest is up to you. That is false evangelism. And that's because the point of belief is not activated by you. The point of belief is the Holy Spirit in you. And if you stop short of that in the gospel, that's a false gospel. Here the word says in, in that second chapter that the word of God works effectually in those that believe. So how does election lead to proper evangelism? It stops us dead in our tracks. It leaves us in the dust, fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit's power to use the word to regenerate the sinner. Now the soul winner that misses this, who expects that anyone can be persuaded to believe, that he, as the soul winner, is responsible to persuade and to be trained enough and to be knowledgeable enough and be able enough to get a response from someone, that soul winner then will always bear the guilt. Did I do enough? Was I convincing enough? Have I failed in my presentation? Folks, you can't fail if salvation of the soul is God's domain, not yours. Paul said the gospel works and the Holy Spirit works to make it work. He will call, He will work, and He will save God's chosen ones. You are never going to save one more or one less than God has decided will be saved. How will His church be built? Not by us, but by God. God builds it. The Holy Spirit builds it. And you know that if you were ever involved in one of these types of ministries that are laden with all sorts of programs, thinking that they can do more than God can do, then you know how much guilt was impressed on you for your performance. What are your statistics, they say? How many did you talk to this week? How many professions did you get? And your Christianity is judged by that. But in this great chapter of election in Romans 9, Paul wrote, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Do we believe in evangelism? Yes, we do, but we believe in proper evangelism. Now I'm going to ask you a harder question. Do we evangelize as much as we should? Ask yourself, and I'll ask myself. Do we evangelize as much as we should? And the answer to that question, I think we all know. But election has nothing to do with our obedience to the command. 
any more than not believing an election has anything to do with obedience to the command. We are still responsible to evangelize personally, individually, and also corporately as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to show you next that election promotes positive evangelism. Positive evangelism. Well, what do we mean by positive evangelism? Well, understand that if there is no election to salvation, we're just out here just basically shooting in the dark. Without election, you evangelize and you have no assurance that anyone will be saved. Without election, it's possible there could be no one left in the world who would believe in Christ. How would you know that there are any that would believe? If people are as likely to reject as they are to believe, and their belief is solely dependent on them, then what confidence can we have that they will believe? When you read Scripture and it talks about the human heart, and it talks about how wicked we are, how estranged from God we are, how hostile to God we are, then how do we think that people will suddenly change their spots, as Jeremiah would say? Oh, this has terrible implications. Without election, it's possible that Christ's death would have been in vain, that he could have died on the cross without assurance that anyone would be saved by his death. Without election and with dependence on sinners to do the right thing, then how could Christ ever hope that his death would amount to anything? And so we look in Scripture and we see, where did Christ find his hope? How did he know that people would believe? Well, I want you to see something very important in Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. If you'll look in this famous chapter, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. You are familiar with it? Isaiah speaks of the suffering Savior, that he is the Lamb of God, smitten by God and afflicted. He says that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Our sorrows, our iniquities, transgressions, our peace, those things are very specific, and they are for certain people. And you can see this in verses 10 and 11 in Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Notice, he shall see his seed. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, get that, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Whose? His seed? The ones that he knows? Whose iniquities will he bear? The ones that he knows. So all the suffering that Christ would go through would be repaid with a people that would believe. Christ went to the cross knowing that he would justify many. You can read all about that in John 17. These are the ones given to him as a gift from the Father. How do we know that? Because there isn't anyone else justified. It's the elect, Paul said, that obtain their salvation. And we are commanded to preach the gospel to all because the elect are among them. And they will hear and they will believe. 
God will call them at the right time through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word that is preached. That's positive evangelism. These are people that God has chosen to believe. This isn't like going to the casino, shooting craps to see if you're going to win this time. This is not like pulling the lever to see if a saved one will come out. No, the ones who believe already belong to God. They're written in his book before the foundation of the world. When they hear, they will believe. My responsibility stops there. So I don't go away feeling guilty. I'm positive of God's promise that he'll do what he said that he will do. The power is not mine. The people are not mine. To God be all the glory for it. He guides those he chooses to believe in Christ. Now here then is this direct quote from that book done. He has done everything he can do. He has paid the price in full for this gift. And now he waits for your decision. Is that what it takes for Christ to see the travail of his soul? Is his work on the cross a failure unless you decide for him? Are you the one who satisfies Christ? No. Christ is satisfied by the Holy Spirit's effectual work in those that are chosen by God. And if that decision was yours alone, God's glory is achieved only if the creature makes it so. And so the election of God is the best possible scenario for the world. The human heart has no capacity to choose anything holy. The depths of your depravity and mine are too deep for us to reach up and grasp God. And so if Jesus Christ stood on this platform today without the Holy Spirit to change your heart, then you would demand his crucifixion. Do you doubt that? Then look at what the world thinks about Christianity. What are they doing to Christians around the world? The same thing that they would do to Jesus Christ. We are the enemy. Peter preached on Pentecost and he said to those people, this is what you did. He said, you, by your wicked hands, have crucified the Lord. Who then can be saved, they asked. Who, who can be saved now that we've done this? Peter said, those who call on the name of the Lord. What do you mean, Peter? You mean the same ones that crucified him? How can that be? How? The Lord must call them. They crucified him. They're not going to call on God unless he first calls them. And he decides before he calls. Isn't that just logical? So this is what I want you to see about the great doctrine of election. God chose you, not because of something you would do. He chose you when you were nothing and could do nothing. And that election of God shows how much he loves you. When he knew that you were born in sin, when he knew that you would reject him, when he knew that you would crucify Christ, he chose you for his own purpose and grace and to the glory of his name alone. He chose you. Why would anybody want a salvation less than that? The glory is God's. He is sovereign and only unconditional election glorifies God. We believe that and we preach it because the Bible tells us so. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for this great doctrine. Although it is hard for many to accept and people would like to have 
decisions and salvation in their own hands, and there are so many who work for it and think they can't achieve it by themselves. Lord, we know that it was in your electing grace that you chose before the foundation of the world that we would come to salvation in you and then that we would be changed and live lives that are holy and without blame. Lord, help us not to try to explain the doctrine of election in ways that the human mind is incapable of understanding. But if this should, word should go out today and people don't understand it fully, open up their hearts to accept what the word says, whether we can understand it fully for your own purposes, which you have not decided to tell us what those are, except to glorify you, why you would choose anyone when all of us are sinners, when the only thing that you could see by looking down through time is that we would turn against you, that we would hate you, and that we'd always be hostile towards you. Yet, knowing all of this, you decided that we would be brought to you, loved by you, caressed by you, and the Savior would give his life to die for us. Thank you, Father, for that great truth. And help us, Lord, to keep preaching it to every person. And that every person can repent and believe in Jesus Christ and the proof that they are the elect of God is by that repentance and belief. We don't keep the gospel from anyone. We preach it to all without exception so that those who are the chosen will believe. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Draw us close to you by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.